Welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360, the podcast solving today's most pressing issues in the AI arthritis community. We invite you all to the table, where together we face the daily challenges of autoimmune and autoinflammatory arthritis. Every Sunday, join our fellow patient co-hosts as they lead discussions in the patient community, as well as consult with <laughs> stakeholders worldwide so, to solve the problems all. that matter most. Whether you are a loved one, a professional working in the field, or a person diagnosed with an AI arthritis disease, this podcast is for you. So pull up a chair and take a seat at the table. everyone and welcome to AI Arthritis Voices 360. This is the official talk show for the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Autoinflammatory Arthritis or AI Arthritis for short. And we are tuning in from Germany. No, we're not. As you can see from her background. <laughs> if you're watching, uh, yeah. now this is we're we're putting this also on, on our, our we're making a podcast audio version of this, but we will have a link so that you can watch our behind the scenes uncut version uh, on on YouTube. But when you do that, you'll see us and you'll see that I have a photo. What is this, Patrice? In the background? It's Old Town Frankfurt. Old Town Frankfurt. Okay. So it was completely destroyed in World War II and they rebuilt it. And we have There's a historian um, yeah, <laughs> in indeed. our midst as well. You hear other voices. So my name is Tiffany. I am the CEO of the organization, also a person living with AR arthritis diseases, primarily non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis and extras. <laughs> and, <laughs> and our historian that popped in, this is Patrice. Hi, Patrice. Hi, Tiffany. How are you? <laughs> Good. Why not? Why don't you just tell briefly a little bit about yourself, who you are? Well, I'm Patrice Johnson, and I'm coming to you from sunny and very, very hot California. I've had RA or something along those lines for the last nine years and a couple other little goodies thrown in there too. <laughs> awesome. And then you might have heard another another voice, yet another. Hi, Deb. Yes. Hey, how is everybody doing? Good. Tell yes. us a little bit about you. Although yes. most, some of our viewers, our, our listeners already probably know you because Deb is a recurring show co-host. <laughs> yes. And I'm happy to be here. I am in what is sunny Madison, Wisconsin, and we've actually had some really good weather. Uh, I also am a patient and I've been living with RA um, since I was 13 years old. So 37 years of having it. Yes, you can do the math. That would be 50. Blah. <laughs> almost 51. But yeah, so I'm one of those patients. And again, lots of other comorbidities that go along with having those type of diseases. And um, yeah, happy to be here. Awesome. So what are we doing? What is the topic of the show today? Well, we mentioned Germany. And there was yeah. a reason for that. There's a reason why I, I uh, have that in, as my screensaver in the backdrop here. We are attending ULAR, the European League Against Rheumatism. They have a scientific convention every year, and it is one of two of the major scientific conferences that we always attend. The other one is the American College of Rheumatology. That happens typically in the fall, and ULAR happens in the summer. But it was supposed to be in Frankfurt, Germany yeah. <laughs> this year, and because of COVID, it was pushed online. Now, the cool thing about it being online is that as people living with these diseases, and Deb can definitely testify yes. <laughs> on this because she has been my, my kind of partner in crime going to these conferences, four days is not a lot of time. No. And you're, I mean, you are <laughs> whipping from one end of the buildings to the next end and you've got 10 minutes to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so there's a lot. Not and there's a lot to see too. So between Absolutely. sessions, which are, you kind of go in like picture a lecture hall to these big posters or abstracts they're called, but it's kind of a, a tiny summary of the, the most current research that's happening to symposiums held by pharmaceutical companies. Then there's mm -hmm. the networking. There's a lot in the booth. Yep. I forgot about the booth. All of our friends. <laughs> of uh, other nonprofit organizations yes. and scientific 
groups that have their booths there in addition to pharmaceutical companies. So there's just so much to see. And so what happens is after we we pick the sessions or the abstracts or the, the things that we believe are the most important for our organization and the projects that we do so that mm-hmm. they're relevant. And, and then also to r- disseminate the research that we're finding back to our community. So that's what we're kind of doing. But the beauty of it is they have it available online till September 1st, 2020. And we don't have to do it in four days. Exactly. Flare free. And we get to do it from the comfort of our homes and, you know, have headphones on and just, And Patrice is with us. Yes. Because typically it was just (laughs) my first time. Yeah. And we're happy that you're on this journey with us. Well, thank you. And I'm so glad to be a part of this. It's just been such an educational process for me. So I'm, I'm glad to learn everything that I can. Well, that's awesome. And, and, and that's one of the reasons why when Patrice was showing interest about being part of our, what we're calling our core conference attendance team, that would be the ones who are actually going and previewing all of the abstracts and the sessions so that we can bring back the information that would be most important for all of you and most interesting for all of you. You know, Deb and I are kind of old pros at this, but Mm -hmm. it's nice to have a variety because at our organization, we always say it doesn't matter if you're the CEO or the newest volunteer. And this is you. You can have a seat at the table because all voices matter. And here we are. Exactly. Perfect example. Typically what happens is the if we're at the actual conference, we will go and we that day and we will attend these different sessions and view different abstracts. And then we come back together as a group afterwards, um, usually over dinner and yes. drinks. I have wine. Yes. <laughs> sitting here. It's we're, always we're important trying to for keep us. it. <laughs> we're trying to keep this as true to life as if we were really at the conference. So we would be in our comfy clothes. Yes. You know, so I probably wouldn't be sitting out in the middle of the of the courtyard, <laughs> the town square that I have in the back. But, um, you know, so I should probably switch my backdrop to like a sofa setting with the city yeah. in the background. Um, but then we'll have dinner and and usually have some wine and, and talk about this. And that, so that's what we're simulating today. We're simulating a debrief is what we call it. Mm-hmm. And we are going to give you an overview of a few of the sessions and abstracts that we attended this week. And when I say a sample, there's been lots of things. There's been lots of things that we've seen. And we will give you more information about how to find those other debriefs at the end and how you can join us and go, quote unquote, to ULAR all through July, because we will, um, now that we're going through all of these sessions, we're ready to share them in full and talk to you all about them. Yeah. So I'll bring you to the table and have a conversation. So we're going to let Deb Will you start us out here on what we're going to talk about first? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the sessions that we chose was called the Open Plenary Abstract Session. And it was probably about nine different, actually, they were introduced to us as being the award-winning abstracts. So they had all the criteria and all the methods and everything was done really, really well. So they were the award-winning ones. And I think there were about nine sessions or nine little snippets that went through. And each of the people went ahead and gave us like a 10-minute little summary of what their um, their abstract was about. Two in particular jumped out at us as being really, really interesting one of them was called the Effectiveness of Making It Work program at Improving Presenteeism and Work Cessation in Workers with Inflammatory Arthritis. That's a big mouthful. Yeah, so but in layman's yes, terms. Exactly. Um, being so, at work and exactly. not being at work because yes. of your disease. <laughs> exactly. Um, so it was really an interesting session because it went into things that kind of made us think a little bit. What are the barriers of in what kind of insurances that people have at work that people are at work or they're not at work? And how many hours are they on workman's comp or whatever else? Um, so it was really interesting. And it actually related back to something that we thought it was that oh, we're right, divided. right. Yep. Right. Do you want to take that tip? Yeah, sure. Just to, just how, we, we like to tell you how what we're seeing. Also, we when we go to these conferences, we're learning so that we can also improve the work we do. And, yes. and 
be able to help your lives and our lives because we're people living with the diseases as well. And one of the, now this is a U.S. insurance-based issue, but to us, it's relevant globally and it it's an, involves work. Well, to us, it involves work. So the accumulator issue is essentially a problem where in the United States, you have these coupon cards, if you will, where the manufacturer will help you pay for your prescriptions. And let's say your prescription is $22,000 a year and it will pay for $11,000. Well, usually your insurance will cover the rest of it. You you get to a certain amount of out-of-pocket and then it takes over. And and I just don't, I'm not going to get into this no. whole, yeah. I'm just very basic. A little bite. <laughs> just a little bite. Um, and essentially what's happening with this is now there's this thing called the accumulator where the manufacturers, $11,000 isn't going to be enough. It's going to run out because they're not going to count those towards what you're putting towards initially all year. So about six months into the year, you're going to get this big shock and all of a sudden you have to pay $2,000 for your biologics. So this is something that was installed a couple of years ago and it's just now starting to become prevalent. But one of the things that we realized as an organization, and it was something that was different than any of the others around the United States were doing, is we realized, hey, well, if there's not any stories yet, because at the time there weren't, who are the, the most being affected? And one of those core groups are people who are employed that have our diseases. And so we thought, let's focus on those. And even though there's no stories yet, the HR people or the people, uh, human resources, the people who are choosing the insurance plans, they would essentially say, look at the bottom dollar and say, hey, this looks pretty good. If we have an accumulator, we're going to save some money. But do they really understand the ramifications of that? So our plan is to understand everything that has to do with a, a person's ability to work. Because if a person cannot work and any statistics we can find that show what happens if you do not have access to your biologics, which is what we were learning in this presentation, that is an issue that human resources should understand. And then in turn, if they understand, wow, I'm doing this to the employee or the employee is no longer going to be able to work to their fullest capacity because they don't have access to their meds. They're going to call in sick. They're going to be late for work. They're going to have brain fog, fatigue. I mean, we can go on and on. And so we have been trying to collect stories from patients on the what if so that we can then present that. that. And that is not only relevant to the United States, that really expands Globally, because mm -hmm. even though it's called the accumulator in the United States, this is an issue for access globally. So we're using the same stories, the same backgrounds on the issue that if you don't have access to your biologics, this is what could happen. So our, our scope is a lot bigger than just the United States because we are international. So that's why that one was very important to us. And it, you know, it actually just, you know, clearly spelled out the problem and, um, it was a really good session. So you too can watch that. Oh, if, yes. Um, oh, what a teaser. What a yes. teaser. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and the yes, and our second one that actually we um, that we kind of liked as well as far as an abstract it had a really long scientific name. Just to give you a little background, I am a dietitian. Um, dietetics and biology were my majors in high school or college. Holy cow, high school that'd be something. Um, <laughs> and um, <laughs> prodigy, yes. <laughs> So we've had I've had years of scientific language and things like that. So that's why it makes more sense when I'm going through these things. And this one was on and like in a simplified way, the gut. There you go. And, um, <laughs> you know, they use the term microbiome, which, again, relates to your digestive system and, you know, all of those different things. So it was a really interesting session relating to rheumatoid arthritis and the intestinal biome basically what's happening. And a few of the conclusions, and one in particular was the intestinal biome, it changes gradually during the disease progression of rheumatoid arthritis, which we found really interesting. And she had lots of data behind it as far as why that happened. So those are two in particular that were really interesting out of the nine that actually really related back to our organization. And um, just wanted to give you a little bit of information about that.
So yeah, I think we're going to move on to the next one. Patrice? Yes. So they, uh, the bottom line of this was why do people take or do not take their medication? And if they do not take their medication, what are their reasons for doing that? Is it fear? Uh, maybe the side effects from their medication? Maybe they just forget. Uh, maybe it's because they have such busy lives and uh, you know they're involved in work and family and activities and just you know maybe they just feel that uh, they just don't need it. Uh, but there are a lot of reasons why people don't take their medication. Mm-hmm. Hey, Patrice, wasn't there something on the pregnancy? I found that one fascinating as I well. I so too. And I know I'm putting you on the spot. <laughs> yeah, I did. Really I'm sorry. <laughs> I know. Well, no, I, I mean, if I can actually, you know, speak to that, it was interesting because there was one of the doctors that was speaking about that particular session that almost was irritated. So she was saying why women of, who have these diseases of reproductive age either decide to have children or not have children, but she was along the lines of, well, if you have this disease, why would you want to have children? Ooh. And why would you want to stop your medications? Yes. Right. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, it was so more, a little yeah. different. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was more about, you know, why would you stop your medications and have to go off them for the periods of time because the disease progression would still be happening you know, and you wouldn't be in good control. Just just as a side note, we should circle back with Mariah Leach. Yes. Yes. The mamas. Mamas moving, uh, moving mamas forward. Mamas forward? Yeah, mamas yeah. forward. Gosh, oh, I hope we didn't just bur- butcher that. I'm sorry. I, that I, was not yeah. planned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I Mariah, forgive us, but I'm we're going to bring I you just, back. I just, uh, yeah, I just, that just came out as I started thinking about this. But we did, uh, and she does a lot of advocacy for, for Absolutely. mothers who want to have children. And there are ways that you can still stay on some medications yes. too. And working with a group called Mother to Baby, we do have another episode we can link to with that. But there's a lot of research studies that go along with if you want to maintain yes. treatment use while on while pregnant. And yes. so and it's so different. I had my son 21 years ago, and it's you know everything. I think the only thing that I was really able to stay on was um, prednisone. Yeah. And they upped that dose to carry me through the pregnancy, and I had to be off everything else. But now they're finding with more research that you can still be on some of them, and it doesn't cross the placental barrier. So right. And so anyway, that's why I found that one particularly interesting when you just said yeah. that because if the doctor was saying, well, kind of alluding to the fact that you need to be off of treatments, then and yeah. maybe that's why people when they're mm-hmm. when they're pregnant, well, maybe we need to delve more in. And I'd like, I'd really like Mariah's to to see what she thinks of that segment. So we're going to have to share that with her if she hasn't already watched it. The other thing that you, I remember you mentioning when we, we were downloading a little earlier was it kind of falls along the pregnancy was young people. The difference between young and old with adherence, younger and older. And that, and, and I should preface that by also saying young could be early disease versus long-term disease. Yeah. Didn't they, um, like for them to be young, the, for the particular, it was 18 to 35. Yeah. Okay. So it was was age. It was age. Okay. It was age related on that one. Yeah. I think they, they, uh, one of the common themes that they shared too was shared decision-making was a big part of how they navigated. Wasn't it? I believe so. Yes. Yes. And you know, too, you have the younger age, I don't want to say younger age, but the age group that they studied. And then people like in my age category, well, I take my medication because I feel like I'm a lot older and wiser than them. And it's like, who would want to go back to the way I was before I you know, started taking this medication? But I guess it all comes down to a personal choice and lifestyle. And so I'd be interested to see how this would moving forward if they just go back to this and then do a study in like five or maybe 10 years and then include that same group, the younger group, yes, 10 years later, because their life is probably at age 18 is a lot different mm-hmm. at age 28 and 
38. And for those who decide who chose not to use their not to use medications for for whatever reason, how that turned out for them mm -hmm. yes. after 10 years, because, you know, science says that 10 years without treatment in these particular diseases often leads to disability. So th that would, that will be very interesting. It's something Deb and I have, <laughs> have talked about actually oh many times yes, that absolutely. when we hear this and, and we see such a shift in, and people that were diagnosed on the pre-biologic age versus now you have people diagnosed and choosing not to be on it, where you have these people from different generations before saying, oh my gosh, if I only had them. So it, that's just an yeah. interesting topic that, believe me, we are going to explore more for, for sure. sure. This yeah, is something again, we can revisit. The first 20 years of my disease progression was without biologics. And I'm now having surgeries to fix right. everything that happened and all those other. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so that, that we are, we are going to definitely um, revisit. So the adherence was, it was, was really an interesting one. It was. And then there was the the, um, cardiovascular. That's it. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> I'm, point, I'm pointing we, to my heart, which means yeah. nothing to the people yeah. who are listening. <laughs> and we can't even see that. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm not even we on camera. I, no, that wasn't like even. I, 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 oh well. So cardiovascular. Yeah. So that was a session that I actually, I found very interesting. It actually talked across several broad categories. It talked about rheumatoid arthritis. It talked about psoriatic arthritis, axial spondy, AS, which is ankylosing spondylitis. And there were probably like six different sessions that were about 15, 20 minutes each. And one of them in particular that I'm looking at is the barriers to shared decision-making. And it was talking about rheumatoid arthritis and things like that. It was really interesting. They did, I mean, the overarching, you know, idea behind all of this was that they were talking about the cardiovascular risk. And for me, having RA, that is something that I've actually been pursuing, doing more research on. And they are finding that there is, um, again, you know, Tiffany was saying this, that with arthritis, there's inflammation. So why wouldn't it, you know, affect your heart? And yeah, yeah that whole sure. principle that made well, sense. The, the whole fact that these are, we have these autoimmune or auto-inflammatory diseases, yeah. they are of the immune system. So arthritis is a major clinical component in the diseases we cover, but the inflammation goes to the bloodstream and attacks things other yeah. than joints. So it only makes sense. Yeah, that it would you be know. a risk factor. And they're finding um, in those diseases that I mentioned in particular that there is a higher risk for having cardiovascular issues, whether it be a heart attack or a stroke or, you know, something related with the pulmonary blood and, you know, everything else that goes with that, there is more of a chance. So one of them in particular was to close the gap for proper cardiovascular management and making sure that people are having their, you know, baselines at least taken for cardiovascular risk and things like that. Yeah. Because, I mean, even we were talking also familial type things. Um, Patrice brought that up. And that is not something that was actually brought up in the session, but it actually, you know, brought up another question that we were wondering about. Yeah. So Which is? What's that? Oh, Witches. so yes, yeah. So familial, like if it, if you, if your grandparents or parents had cardiac issues when they were older, I mean, both my grandparents had that. My mom does, and just makes me worried about my own self if I'm at higher risk. So yeah. it's a that good is, question. It I is. Don't don't know. The other thing that I found really interesting about that, well, two things about that session was. I, I know that we've heard for years that RA and cardiovascular, it was surprising to me it, it, to, to see the other diseases coming out, which again, yes. I shouldn't say surprising. It's not surprising to me, right. but I was happy to see that the research was being done. Yes. Is, is a on, the different, way, on the other diseases. On the other because, diseases. Right. Absolutely. Because 
RA tends to be the one that it actually I feel bad because I have that disease, but I feel like if I were to have, you know, psoriatic or ankylosing spondylitis or axial, that um, the research isn't being done quite as broadly. So I'm glad to see that now. And, you know, again, sorry that the risk is there for across the board. But again, the science is there and they want to do more research on these subjects, which I think is important. I just wish that my rheumatologist would do a baseline cardio, you know, cardiovascular test for me. (laughs) Yeah. Two, two things. Well, now, now I've got three things to add on that. Yeah. Sorry. So <laughs> thanks, Deb. surprise, surprise. <laughs> but the first thing you just said, I wish my rheumatologist would do a baseline on that. I think that this is an important takeaway for our community that we have to be remembering that our diseases are systemic and we have yep. to take care of our, our heart, our lungs, our yes. eyes, our skin. I mean, there's, there's other, there's other ways that the inflammation especially if it's if we're not treated early or if it's out if it's not controlled. I mean that's what happens. Here what happened this was explained to me actually a couple years ago by a rheumatologist who is a researcher at one of the pharmaceutical companies. Hala Mark can't say your last name because I don't know if I can. I, you know who I'm talking about. Yeah, fine. I do know um, who you're talking about. <laughs> but uh um, so he was explaining for me, because I had the question, what happens? Why, why am I now having these complications where before I only had these? And he said, well, what happens is if you're even in a, you know, biologic, our goal is to get your disease under control. But if you're underlying inflammation, which is invisible, you know, your underlying inflammation is somehow still not in control. It will reroute itself to present in other ways. And so that's why often we may end up having other issues. And it's it's because our disease is progressing and medications can only do so much. So you have to really think about keeping your inflammation down so that it doesn't redirect. So that, again, that wasn't planned, but I, I had to say that because I think it's important. Oh, and then, absolutely. And this is how these dis- discussions go, is one thing we say plays off yeah. another. And like, you know, Patrice brought up the familial part um, well, when we talked briefly, and I and I should and, and I should add to what what Deb just said. As an organization, that's what we do. We are we are yes. people living with the diseases who believe by communication we can find these key holes, if you will, that aren't being addressed by others, or maybe we need more information about. But only people living with the diseases, the true experts can identify mm-hmm. these things. And so we then take them to the table and keep the patient as an equal stakeholder to talk to the other stakeholders to solve the problem. So it was just, that was a beautiful example. Not not planned, yes, but beautiful perfect. example. Last yes. but not least, before we move on, which we need to do, COVID. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They talked about that too, right? In cardiovascular? A little bit. Yeah. Let me see if I can actually, you know, what was I, I'm trying to even remember what the tie was there. Um, Tiff, can you help me sure. out? Sure. Well, to me. I think, well, I, they mentioned something about colchicine in particular, and, oh, that's and right. I picked that yep. up because I'm on colchicine. And yes. again, we won't spend a whole lot of time on this because we have other sessions that we talked about in detail with COVID. Yeah. But it did it did come up again. Go ahead, Deb. So yeah, it was actually related. That wasn't COVID. I think that was what our we brought that around oh, ourselves okay. in our conversation. But they were doing a colchicine trial for cardiovascular reasons, and they were giving it orally, so by your mouth, for working on the anti-inflammatory parts of, in this case, it was pericarditis, and they wanted to do a particular study that relates to myocardial infarction, which again is part of the heart not working correctly, and seeing what the effects of colchicine was on I'm saying that wrong. No, you're I right. I did. It's Sorry. Oh, was it? Okay. <laughs> I felt like I added an extra syllable nope. in there. Um, as far as the cardiovascular outcomes and the long-term safety and tolerability. And as a matter of fact, today I read an article relating to colchicine being promising with COVID. Yes. And it was actually, yep. So you probably saw it too. I saw um, like three different articles well, and they were all different. I actually saw an article a few weeks ago. Now we have to date ourselves here. We are in June of 2020. 20, and, yeah, 26. Uh, and, um, and so COVID is only still 
you know, a few months old, six months old. Mm -hmm. And again, won't go into all of this because we have other episodes we can link to. And my suspected journey with possible COVID and never had heart issues, but then I, I'm still dealing with pericarditis as a result, and I'm already on coltacine for Bichette's like syndrome. And so it was interesting because they were saying, well, you need to be on coltacine. And I said, well, I'm already on it. But <laughs> it, it makes me, I am very curious. Research is so new, but I'm very, very curious to see what that research holds long-term because I am wondering yeah. if that was COVID that caused this to happen to my heart. Mm-hmm. I wonder if being on it somehow protected me from, mm-hmm. from it because it, it, it was From bad even worse I mean, it yeah was but bad. even being I even worse around yeah. thinking for two weeks i was having a heart attack 24 7 and went to the emergency room twice so it could have saved my life who knows but anyway we digress yes so all the asides <laughs> no the, all the asides that we go with um again this is where these conversations you know come out and i love that part of this um because we end up putting fingers to different things that we're doing as a organization yes, absolutely and, and it all yeah. stemmed from going to these sessions which is why it's yes. so important let's move on to the ular recommendations uh so the very last thing every year actually at these conferences whether it is the ular the acr the last day it's kind of like the unveiling, if you will, of, yes, of, the, it is. <laughs> of this is what we're recommending. And so the recommendations vary. You have to remember these conferences are designed for science. So they're not they're mm-hmm. not patient driven sessions. I mean, patients have only been invited to attend these conferences in the very recent years. We didn't go to all of the recommendations because many of them were about how to set up research methodology, et cetera. But the ones that did stand out to us, the first couple were on the updated recommendations for treatment of rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis. So they did Mm -hmm. them separately, but we're grouping them together. So a couple of the, one of the things that, that I thought was interesting, we talked about a little bit was that in rheumatoid arthritis, in 2010 was the first time that they revised the guidelines, the guidance <laughs> and recommendations since, and I can't, I don't have the name, the, the date on the top of my head, but it was the eighties, correct? I believe so. Yeah. So a long time. <laughs> <laughs> there's our, there's our layman's terms right there. Yes. It was a long exactly. time. So, you know, Finally, I remember that being a big deal because I was diagnosed in 2009 and my rheumatologist was already privy to the recommendations that were coming out in 2010. And that's one of the reasons why I was initially diagnosed with RA. It became much easier to have a diagnosis in 2010 or 2009 if your doctor was privy (laughs) to what those recommendations were going to be, even though that didn't end up being what I had. That's another story. But the point was that that was just very interesting. But not different, but not different from everybody else's story. Again, not different. Yes. But then they revised again 2013, then 2016, and now again. So it just shows you how much more attention is is being paid to understanding what needs to happen for diagnosis. So that in itself was promising and just a little, little thing I wanted to point out. Basically, the bottom line is not a lot changed. And whether it was rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis, basically there were only a couple things. And the first one, I'll say rheumatoid arthritis, that we found really interesting as well was they added that patients may require access to multiple drugs with different modes of action to address the fact that our diseases are essentially unique to each individual and that they may have to have these multiple therapies throughout life. That was very interesting for a couple reasons. First, uh, lupus falls under our umbrella of AI arthritis diseases. And for years, lupus has been sort of the go-to disease that that is suggested that it's so unique. It's they often the, the lupus patients will also, also often, excuse me, call it a snowflake. Uh, that that's very common in in that community, and and yes, lupus definitely involves a lot of different organs manifestations. Yes, systemic. It, it is very systemic, head to toe, and um, and that's one of the reasons for the com- the complexity of it. But it was nice to see that rheumatoid arthritis is being recognized as a multi system 
organ, like we just heard with the cardiovascular, mm-hmm. where there are going to have to be some kind of, not going to have to be, might be stacking involved or multiple therapies in order to get the disease under control. It's not just the joint disease. So that was a very important takeaway with that. We also wanted to give out a shout shout out to Martin DeWitt. Hey, yes, yes. We, hey, we love Martin. We do a lot of work with Martin. And um, he is a, he does a lot of work at ULAR and oh my gosh, Overact. I can't, I could go on and on. He's, he's, um, and us, yay. <laughs> yay yeah, for us. And he exactly. Was, he's yeah. living with psoriatic arthritis and also in the research community. And uh, he was part of the steering committee for the rheumatoid arthritis recommendations. So we just wanted to do a shout out and point out that yes, patients are involved in those, mm-hmm. which makes sense why that recommendation was added because patients yes. are saying it's, it's more than, than just the joints. Other than that, did I miss anything for rheumatoid arthritis? I don't. The only other thing that wasn't overarching was um, the JAK inhibitors. Oh. And all the different phases. Yes. Yep. So they actually added that one. That's Thank the, you. I'm looking point. at I'm looking at slides as we're going okay. just to make sure. Thank you. And that was also, was that on both? That was on both. I believe so. Okay. Yes. So this yes. was also very interesting to us. So JAK inhibitors are on the level of biologics, but they are pill form for those uh, who are not familiar. And our Mm -hmm. historically biologics have been mostly injection or infusion. There are a few that are pill form. JAK inhibitor is one of those mechanisms of action. And they're relatively new. And just as all new research, it takes a while to test and make sure that they are safe and they have efficacy in our population. And apparently we did, that was another theme that came up. Jack inhibitors were everywhere. <laughs> yes, yes. And apparently they have now demonstrated that they do work well. And now the recommendations for both rheumatoid arthritis and psoriatic arthritis have included them as an equal choice, as a possibility where before it would say they recommend maybe a, a TNF inhibitor, which is one kind of biologic. There's many different mechanisms of action now. As, as we've grown and this, and, and they're saying, well, there's enough research to say that you could choose. The interesting part, more interesting, I guess I should say, was in psoriatic arthritis in particular, they mentioned that a placement of a JAK inhibitor may be appropriate in cases such as non-adherence to injections. I picked that up immediately and went, oh my gosh. So there, are, I can't tell you how many patients I I know or we've talked to that do not like injections and um, they're like no needles needles. (laughs) (laughs) no needles which is a rough thing if you've got these diseases exactly and so they there's there's been a pushback because the pill form not having the research to back it up is tends to be more expensive but now that the research is backed up it should come more there's going to be some kind of level of equal <laughs> there. And yes. it will be very interesting to see if patients are able and doctors are able to use that recommendation from, from psoriatic arthritis and say, hey, it says right there in the recommendations that if a patient has an adherence to needles, essentially they should use a JAK inhibitor. So we're going to have yes. to follow up on that because that was- For sure. And um, one of the, in the end of the rheumatoid arthritis, it says once the above fails, so meaning the treat to target, aiming for remission, and the methotrexate with short-term glucocorticoids, which are prednisone steroids, once that fails, any DMARD, um, which is the disease modifying agent that yes, thank you. Cause these acronyms kill me <laughs> after a while or Jack inhibitors is recommended in order to aim for the therapeutic target. So actually the target is remission and ULAR regards all these therapies as having similar efficacy. So the actual wording is right there. And I, it's, it's great to see in, um, in an understandable way. Yes. Yes. So, and again, we can, we will go into more details about these because as we said throughout July, you can join us at ULAR and we will give you more information about that here at the end. But but essentially this is our debrief. We're talking about some major points. We're 
we're disseminating them also to you. And then we're going to invite you back to talk more about the hot topics that are important to you. So that will be throughout July. So let's move on. And that we have a, just a couple more that we wanted to mention here. And one of them was including young people in patient reported outcome measures or PROMs. And another shout out to not only our friend Simon Stones, but he's a recurring co-host, co-host of the show. Simon. <laughs> so, and he is a person also living with psoriatic arthritis and, and Crohn's, and he is in the research community as well. So he is an amazing asset to the show. And we saw his name in there. So we have to give him a good shout out. And I think we're going to have to rope him into doing a podcast. A conversation. Yeah. And having one of these contests on this stuff. Yeah. In saying that, we'll keep this really brief because who better to explain this all to you than Simon. But what we did want to just take away from it was it's really refreshing to see that they are thinking about including young people and young people is defined by them as 18 to 35. That's the age range in talking about what's most important to them. And that lows right back As to patients, right. shared decision-making. We keep seeing it over and over. It's just a theme that's coming up over and over. And that really is uh, patients speaking with their doctors about outcomes that are important to them and then altering the treatment to be relevant to those outcomes. So one of the things I know, Patrice, you pointed out a really interesting thing about the e-solutions or a finding that they, about online with the young people. Yes. So they were finding out that the young, these 18 to 35 year olds were preferring to do a lot of it online and e-solutions. That's their world, you know, People in my generation <laughs> like the paper <laughs> stuff. Um, actually, you're talking to three of us. Really, all three of us are paper people. That's funny. Are you saying we're old? Well, we're not eight. We're not eight. We're not eighteen to thirty-five. No, we're not. <laughs> we absolutely are not. We're like a fine-aged bottle of wine. I like that. So, but but we're gonna keep the next couple brief, just just because yeah. um, we can we can definitely talk more about them, but. It was just interesting as well because they did talk about thinking about your daily life and considering things like psychosocial issues, social participation, sports, education, work. So it's not all about the treatment. You have to think full body. And and that is what uh, things that, well, well, I'll mention here for the next one, lifestyle behavior. It really is about this idea of precision medicine versus personalized medicine. So personalized would be thinking about those things, your social life, your sports, your education, your work, how the rest of your relationships, the rest of your life is part of your treatment therapy (laughs) that needs to be considered. That's personal. That's your personalized side. So yes, but interest that was something with the e-solutions. I think it, it the score was 9.92 <laughs> said that. Yeah, out of 10. Out of 10. Uh but you know, all ages are really being thrust into this now and and so yes. that's just going to be something to follow up with as mm-hmm. well. So kudos to to them. They did they're doing a really good job of making sure that patients are being involved and young people are are being active Absolutely. in their healthcare. So well, Simon, we're coming for you. You're, we're going to yep. ask you to just be just aware. Look yeah. out. We're telling you now. <laughs> and then briefly, I'll just mention one takeaway. There was another one for recommendations for lifestyle behavior to prevent progression in uh, rheumatic diseases. And, you know, they talked about some some basic lifestyle strategies, eat well, sleep well, <laughs> you know, just which yes. I don't think there was there wasn't much novel, not much. Um, no, not, nothing that jumped out at us again. You know, but one of the things that the one big takeaway that we're going to take with this from this one is that the results of the studies that they were doing with different patients, they had several different disease groups that they were following and studying what was important to them on their different lifestyle choices. The bottom line is that lifestyle improvements need to complement your therapy. They need to complement your treatment, I should say, your medical treatment, and tailor those recommendations to the individual 
and regular discussions with doctors. And again, that comes shared decision-making, but the big pull away with that again, goes to that precision versus personalized medicine. That's a huge one with us at our organization. And we will invite you just make sure that when you follow us and you learn more about what we do, we have a huge precision medicine project that we're working on right now. And part of it is a, is a very large component of teaching you all about the different parts of personalized versus precision and how it can help you. And we're even doing a shared decision-making tool. So, <laughs> yes. So, well, make sure that you, that, that, uh, that's one of the reasons these were important to us. And then, um, last but not least, Deb, did you want to lead the recommendations for intro articular treatment? There's not a lot to say, just a few bullets. No, um, yeah. So basically what the guidelines were based on were for um, injections, joint injections. So they they just talked a little bit about kind of when we talked about this briefly, we were talking about, again, some of the guidelines did jump out at us because they were talking about like the environment that it's actually they're being done in. So whether it's a hand, finger, knee, shoulder, you know, whatever joint is being done, I found it interesting that it was a couch was brought up. (laughs) Like, I I was like, wow, I never thought about a couch before. I always thought about the exam tables and, you know, but having the ability to lay back and, you know, depending on how the patient is doing with that. Um, So yeah, it was interesting just talking, but nothing that was that jumped out at us as being, besides that one, unusual. Mm-hmm. Again, sterile, looking at the equipment, making sure all the, everything proper was available. Anything else I'm yeah, missing? I'll that just, I, I'll just yeah. add to that. So yeah. um, one of the... One of the things that stood out, we know that intro articular, we should mention, is injections. So yes, those, thank you. <laughs> so those, I see where you're going. Yeah. So those are methods of uh, uh, if you're getting an injection, a steroid or something that's yes. going to make your, yes. your joints feel better. One of the things that I wanted to point out with this, first of all, these are recommendations that were based on patient reported needs. So we should yes. point that out, that more mm-hmm. more is being done to set these recommendations based on what the patient thinks is important. That's good. Yeah. And necessary. And necessary. And then secondly, as we were looking at these domains or like think of a piece of a pie and then each piece of the pie is a domain or a, a section of focus, if you will. And like Deb said, the atmosphere, the environment, when they asked what, when you think about injections, what is important to you. And so we, as people who have talked to a lot of patients about different types of injections, or we have a project that we're doing on synovial tissue that we can talk more about and Mm -hmm. and share with you. We actually have several episodes, podcast episodes. We'll link to those from this so that you can check those out. But what we're doing is we are working with OMARAC, which is Outcome Measures in Rheumatology. We're working with researchers to understand if a patient would go under a biopsy in their knee to take out synovial tissue, what would be important for them to know beforehand? And some of the same things were coming up and that's what became interesting. So those domains were coming up of fear. What's going to happen to me? Will I flare afterwards? How will I feel better? What's the recovery time? All of those things we get. And so these new ones that came up when we've been doing our work with the synovial tissue, we haven't thought about environment. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, we hadn't. So we're going to, we're going to take this one and we're going to try to apply it in some of those domains to the work we're doing in the synovial tissue. And you can learn more about that project. Again, we'll link to it, but essentially we're talking to patients, whether or not you've had a knee biopsy, we need information. We need the, the voices of all people. And if you would do that, what would you want to know ahead of time? Because we're going to help create those educational materials. And then the point of helping them is it is research that is moving towards precision medicine. And you may not actually have to get a knee biopsy, but what if you could get one to help advance precision medicine? What information would you want then? Would that be different (laughs) than just getting one if you had to get one? If you didn't have to get one, what would you want to know before going? Yeah. Because I mean, the obvious ones that we know of is risk benefit. So playing those, but again, these other principles we're going to actually apply just to see how they would relate to that. Yes. So 
So there you go. So those were the highlights of the end of session uh, when they do the the recommendations. And that wraps up our debrief for this week. And when I say this week, this is the third one we've done. Yes. And we have one more that we'll also do a week from today, which will end in the end of June. And then moving into July is when you can go with us to you, Lars. So essentially we have that. This just shows you how much information there is. Yeah. And, you know, even during the week for us fitting them in, because the sessions are anywhere between an hour and a half to an hour, sometimes Mm -hmm. 30 minutes, but they're all done in segments with question answers too. So so this is a lot of legwork, but this is what we do when we go to conferences. The only difference is we're doing it all at once. And the beauty of this being online too, is that we are able to see a little bit more than we would have in four days. So this is, so we are maybe collecting a little bit more information, but that's not a bad thing. And so we are inviting you to come with us throughout July and there'll be different methods of communication. We'll do, it's going to be every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time through July. We'll be coming back and streaming on YouTube where we will delve into some very specific topics that we've talked about in our debrief. So we'll narrow them down to sort of the, the hottest ones. Make sure that you sign up to go with us so that you can get notification on what those topics will be. And you can do that. Just go to our website at arthritis.org. Right on the front page, there is a slider screen of photos and click on the one to go with us. You are and just fill out your name and email address and where you live, I think is on there too. Just country. We're not asking for a whole bunch of stuff. And and we'll get in contact with you so that you know how you can join these conversations. And then also we have a new site that houses all of the projects we do. And it's called AI Arthritis Voices. So you can find that at aiarthritisvoices.org. And you can go ahead and apply if you are a person living with these diseases. It will take us a couple of weeks to get everyone onboarded. It's a brand new site. Yes, brand new platform, not a support group. It's not a, it's Correct. not your, your place where you know, we, there's, there's enough places where you can go and ask questions and have a community. And, and yes. th- that's not what this is. This is to, this is, different. This is to house yeah. all of the work, all of the projects we do. So you can join conversations that are relevant to advancing our mission and our projects, which in turn help you. <laughs> so you become a seat at the table. And so this go to you, will be a section inside there as well. So in addition to the live shows that we'll do, the live versions that we'll do and conversations on YouTube, we'll also have plenty of areas where you can find links to places that you can learn more and these debriefs and conversations that will be on there. So again, all you need to do is go to AIarthritis.org and on that homepage, you'll find a link to register for that. We will make sure that we share all of this information that we talked about with you, the links to the different shows we've done in the past that are relevant, the pregnancy one, some of the COVID, precision medicine. There's a lot. link back. Yeah. And I can't wait. I seriously can't wait because I love I love learning what other people think that actually make me think back right. myself. On We've done everything. it just it's right just here. Cyclical. And this is a perfect yes. example why we want you to join us in the conversations. You see how naturally ideas and it just bounce yes. off of each other because patients are talking. And so that that's yes. our whole mission. Uh, we have to talk so we can solve the problems that have impact education, advocacy, and research. It takes our voice to do that. And it takes a village. And you guys are part of the yes. village. So welcome. Join, join, <laughs> join our village. Join our village. Yes. Join us at ULAR. Yes. Join us at AIarthritis.org. You can also find us on social media at IFAIarthritis. And I think that wraps it up. Yes. Yeah. All right. Yes, I think so. Okay. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in to this episode of AR Arthritis Voices 360. You can find all of the shows, which is well over 60 now on arthritis.org backslash podcast. Or if you listen to podcasts, you can subscribe anywhere that you listen to those and please give us a good rating. So it's your turn. Join us, pull up a seat at the table, and together we will change the stories of tomorrow. Thank you, Deb. Thank you, Patrice. My pleasure. I'll be talking to you ladies soon. (laughs) Yes, for sure. So thank you all. AI Arthritis Voices 360 is produced by the International Foundation for Autoimmune and Auto-Inflammatory Arthritis. 
can find us on the web at www.aiarthritis.org. Also, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and stay up to date on all the latest AI arthritis news and events. 